Section 5 of Rural Improvement by Frank A. Waugh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5 Civic Centres. In modern city building, we hear a great deal about civic centres. The civic centre is a concrete expression in city building of the modern genius or organisation. It is a public effort toward efficient administration combined with a public exhibition of power and splendor. It is the imperialism of democracy. In village and rural improvement, we hear less of civic centers. In the first place, rural improvement has not progressed so far as the science of city making. In the second place, there is not the same strong executive organization in the rural community as in the large city. In the third place, the village is not so much given to display of power. Nevertheless, the civic centre belongs to the rural community as well as to the city. It occupies the same place in village affairs that it should in city affairs. A picture is displayed on the following page, a New England Civic Centre. The village needs to take the same pride in itself, which is manifest in the city. There should be the same exhibition of pride and patriotism. Relatively speaking, there will be the same gain in efficiency of administration. Practically considered, the proposition for the development of a civic centre in the village or a country town means an aggregation in some central and suitable position of the public business and of the public buildings. The most important of these, viewed from our present standpoint, is a town hall. With this we may include the courthouse, town library or other local institutions. If the town possesses a separate public library, this can be the next most important building, and the one most urgently to be desired at the civic centre. The day will soon come, with or without the help of Mr. Carnegie, when every enterprising village in this country will have its public library. In many cases, the library will have its separate building. It is reasonably to be expected that, in a large percentage of cases, the public library will be chaste and dignified in design a building expressing the sentiment and civic aspiration of the citizens. Such a building should be geographically central in the town, as it is central in the intellectual life of the community. A picture is displayed on the page, another village centre in Massachusetts. The post office, though representing the federal rather than the local government, is a public institution and peculiarly the property of all the people. In very many country towns it has developed naturally and through the force of circumstances to be the civic centre. It is the form where neighbours meet, where senators are elected and where horse traders are consummated. Here the notices of auctions are posted and the coming circus announced. Obviously the post office should be centrally located and perhaps it is no more than right that the other public buildings should revolve around it. The greatest of public institutions in the small town and in fact in the city as well, is a public school. Therefore, the high school building or the main school building should occupy a place in that group of public structures which constitutes the civic centre. When the public school buildings come to be used, as they certainly will be in the near future, for a great variety of public businesses, the property and the need of a very central location will at once be evident. The next most important institution in the community is, or ought to be, the church. There are many, indeed, who would be glad to name it as the institution of first importance. Looking the facts honestly in the face, however, we cannot claim too much for its influence and its position in public esteem. 
if the church could be a single institution physically represented by a single beautiful edifice the situation would be very different both as regards spiritual influence and civic design the church would then hold a more powerful place in the community and it could command a more dignified setting in the community architecture unfortunately even the most rural towns sometimes try to support a half dozen churches a consequence is that no one of these organizations has any large influence in public affairs or can provide a church building which is a credit to the town a half dozen mean and shabby structures would add nothing to the civic center either physically or spiritually on the other hand when one or more churches have really achieved as efficiently high standing in town so as to represent the sentiment of the people in an important degree and so as to be able to build really suitable buildings then the church buildings belong to the public and will be placed with the other public buildings at the centre of the town a picture is displayed on the previous page common and public buildings north brookfield massachusetts nothing could be finer from the standpoint of civic design nor is representing the civic life of a community than a large beautiful dignified usually congregational or unitarian church fronting on the town commons in many new england villages these come the nearest to representing the ideals both the civic design and church influence of anything we have ever seen in america of course in many european villages where the citizens are all adherents of a single confessional the case is equally good here the church naturally and properly becomes a physical intellectual and spiritual center of the village as one sees such a town from a distance, it is beautifully dominated by its own church. It is greatly to be hoped that the follies and abuses of sectarianism and church division in this country will be greatly abated in the future. Some slight progress seems to be making in that direction, but is altogether too slow. The picture is displayed on the previous page, designed for a simple civic centre. In certain towns and villages, there are other public or semi-public institutions which ought to be reckoned as part of the central group, which we here call the Civic Centre. One of the most appropriate of these is the Grange Hall, which one finds in many towns in the New England states. This, in fact, often becomes the centre of the centre, the principal place of communal interest. The following buildings and institutions should therefore be considered as belonging essentially to the Civic Centre. 1. The Town Hall or Courthouse. 2. The Public Library. 3. The High School or Main School Building. 4. The Church or Principal Churches. 5. Other Public Institutions and Buildings, as the Grange Hall. The arrangement which is given these buildings is of the greatest importance. A picture is displayed on the following page. Civic Centre, Bellefonte, PA. They should, first of all, be central, a fact that should be sufficiently obvious. They should be placed in a single group, reasonably near together, not separated by private buildings, especially those of no consequence. Placing the buildings close together in this manner facilitates the transaction of public business, and what is much more important, it gives the public works of the town a much more effective setting. The buildings are massed in such a way as to make a proper show of the life and resources of the town. They contribute more effectively to civic pride and serve as reasonable advertisements of the thrift and resources of the community. Just as a good farmer takes pride in a big and imposing looking house, so the whole town takes pride in the imposing array of beautiful, appropriate and useful public buildings. 
Undoubtedly, the best arrangement for such a series of buildings is to be found in placing them about the central public square. In many New England villages, these buildings naturally gravitate to the town common. A picture is displayed on the previous page, designed for a simple civic centre. As a matter of fact, the common ought to represent a larger area, while the public square, as a civic centre, should have an entirely different character. The meaning and design of the town common are more fully discussed elsewhere. In many of the New England towns referred to, however, the so-called town common is a small village square which comprises the civic centre, which we now have under consideration. While this arrangement is less frequent in western towns than in New England, it is by no means unknown. I recall the fact that Lyons, Kansas, for example, has designed a central block in which the courthouse is located. The original design for McPherson, Kansas, provided for two blocks on the west side of the town for public buildings belonging to the country, and two blocks on the eastern side of the town for public buildings belonging to the city. While the arrangement might have been improved by grouping the country and city buildings together, this nevertheless is a recognition of the correct principle. The picture is displayed on the page, diagram for an informal rural civic centre. In many small towns, the civic centre has been practically made by placing the principal buildings at, or near, the central crossroads or four corners. If the centre of the village is represented by such a crossroads, it is perfectly natural, and therefore to a certain extent good design, to place public buildings there. A town hall may stand on one corner, and if the grocery store occupies a second corner, as it usually does, no great violence is done to the body or the spirit of the civic centre. If a clean and dignified public holstery should appropriate the fourth corner, the result would be almost all that could be desired, so far as the collection of buildings is concerned. The main defect in this arrangement of public buildings on the central four corners is that the buildings themselves do not show the best advantage. Any church, town, hall or school building can be seen more effectively if placed so as to face upon an open common or if placed at the head of an open street. The latter arrangement, of course, supplies no opportunity for the grouping of several public buildings. A picture is displayed on the previous page, a suggestion from Cornell University. Finally, the public buildings may be placed along both sides of a straight or curving street. This is the least satisfactory arrangement of all, though of course it is better than having the buildings scattered all over the town. At any rate, it brings them into close proximity and secures the advantage of administrative efficiency. It makes public business easier, though it does not give the buildings the beauty of effect which is so much to be desired. In the most rural of rural communities, there are still civic centres, and these might greatly develop. I well remember my early days in the sparsely inhabited plains of Kansas, and I can vividly recall the various social activities which centred at the district schoolhouse. There used to be a church and Sunday school sessions at the schoolhouse on Sundays. The evenings were occupied with literary societies, debating clubs, and revival meetings. If there were any political meetings, they were also held at the schoolhouse. A picture is displayed on the previous page, Town Hall from the Common, Amherst, Mass. The boys used to meet there sometimes on Saturday afternoons for a match game of ball, and I may also say, sometimes on Sunday afternoons. In fact, every kind of public meeting was held at the schoolhouse. 
there seems to me to represent an almost perfect social organization and so far as it went a perfect social equipment at the present time the more advanced country districts are providing a more elaborate equipment for the more advanced and enriched society life neighborhood centers are being established in some places these of course are merely civic centers under another name they usually combine the high school house with a library and playground or some similar equipment this idea is capable of very large extension in all progressive communities in the near future most of the wild plant wealth of the east also has vanished gone into dusty history only vestiges of its glorious prairie and woodland wealth remain to bless humanity in boggy rocky unplowable places fortunately some of these are purely wild and go far to keep nature's love visible white water lilies with rootstocks deep and safe in mud still send up every summer a milky way of starry fragrant flowers out a thousand lakes and many a tuft of wild grass waves its panicles on mossy rocks beyond reach of trampling feet in company with saxifrages bluebells and ferns even in the midst of farmers fields precious sphagnum bogs too soft for the feet of cattle are preserved with their charming plants unchanged chiogenes andromeda calmia linolia arethusa etc calypso borealis still hides in the arpa vitae swamps of canada and always to the southward there are a few unspoiled swamps big ones where miasma snakes and alligators like guardian angels defend their treasures and keep them as pure as paradise and beside that and that the east is blessed with good winters and blossoming clouds that shed white flowers over all the land covering every scar and making the saddest landscape divine at least once a year john moore our national parks end of section five Section 6 of Rural Improvement by Frank A. Waugh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 6 Public Grounds. The development of public parks, playgrounds, and boulevards, and their organization into efficient park systems has come to be recognized as an important part of city improvement. The improvement of a rural community requires similar lines of development. This has generally not been recognised. It has been a common assumption that the country needs no parks and that its boulevard system is sufficiently represented by a neglected network of country roads. The following types of public grounds or reservations are to be considered in a general scheme of rural betterment. A. National parks. B. State parks. C. Local scenery reservations and roads. D. School grounds. E. Cemeteries and church grounds. F. Town commons. G. Playgrounds. Let us look at each of these questions to see what is the nature of the problem. The national parks are destined to play a very important role in the future development of America. If we look at civic art from the national standpoint, they are of prime importance. These national parks should be established in various parts of the country, their location being determined primarily by the desire to preserve spots of national historic importance or with the intention of preserving typical examples of natural scenery or special more or less spectacular features of national importance. The Yellowstone Park in Wyoming is a fine exemplification of this idea. Niagara Falls and its 
environs ought to become a great national, really international park, and this again illustrates the idea distinctly. The battleground reservations at Gettysburg and Lookout Mountain give examples of areas reserved on account of their historic interest. Should we secure an adequate park reservation in the White Mountains or in the Adirondacks under federal control, this would be an example of a park in which would be preserved fine types of natural scenery. The picture is displayed on the previous page, a pleasant public playground on a lake shore. However, we ought to present in the same way the equally beautiful scenery of the sea coast dunes, of the great interior prairies, and of the arid deserts. All these scenery types are beautiful, valuable, and highly important. They cannot be permanently kept for succeeding generations in America unless they are appropriated by the national government and administered in behalf of the whole people. The time should never come when the people of the United States cannot have access to the great and beautiful landscapes which make America what it is today. Other and similar reservations, however, are needed under state control. There are many spots of natural beauty, many types of fine native scenery, many places of historic interest in every state which are especially valuable to the state itself. Though these should all be preserved, they may not be of such national importance as to justify the federal government in patronising them. Several of the states are now definitely entered upon this program of developing state parks. The work has usually been begun on quite the proper theory as we have stated it here. A picture is displayed on the page, Riverbank Reserve for Public Recreation. Besides this, however, even the local community has similar opportunities. The smallest and poorest town has also its spots of historic interest, its types of beautiful scenery, its picnic grounds, its lakes and hills, which should not be allowed to pass into private control. Rather, should they be acquired by the public and kept open to all the citizens of the town. This is a matter of great consequence, which is being widely neglected. There is hardly a town in the country, in fact, where the people have taken reasonable precautions to own their own lakes or even to have access to them. I recently visited a country town where they boasted of a beautiful lake covering 100 acres. They were very proud of it. They used it for boating parties, for fishing, for skating, and the boys went swimming there. On investigation it proved that the town did not own a single foot of the shore and that aside from a few private owners, nobody could reach the lake legally except to fall into it out of a balloon. All the boys who went swimming or fishing, all the boating parties and all the skating parties used the lake only by trespassing on private land. These private owners were constantly making new restrictions, so that without some action in the near future the lake would become practically useless to the community. At the present time it would be easy for this town to acquire the title to a considerable portion of the lake shore at a very moderate expense, and such a course is altogether wise. Indeed, no other course is excusable. This actual example is only one of thousands which might be given, showing what the important and very urgent need is in most country places. During the last few years, I have visited more than a hundred rural communities and have examined the situation in detail with reference to the general questions of civic betterment, and I have found this particular problem, with this particular opportunity, most frequently present and most conspicuously neglected. The items most communities need to look after in this way are a. Ponds and lakes, which ought either to be owned in toto or should be accessible through the ownership of shore properties b. River shores c. Mountain tops or hills commanding especially good scenery d. Small streams, brooks and waterfalls e. Rocky glens, caves, etc. 
A picture is displayed on the previous page, woodland used for public recreation, a municipal forest in Germany. Very often special pieces of scenery can best be opened up and made available by establishing scenic drives or roadways. This will be particularly the case along river banks and lake shores. It is by no means necessary that such a scenic roadway should lead to any particular point. In fact, it is better not to have it so. If the roadway is a convenient highway for traffic, it will soon be taken up with heavy hauling or infested with automobiles. If it is inconvenient for such traffic, it will be left as it should be to the pleasure seekers. It will be a comfortable drive for Sunday afternoon. It will be a resource of pleasure and beauty in the town. And this is precisely what progressive towns ought to provide for. All the school grounds in the country need attention. There has never been reported a case of one which was too highly improved. Everywhere school grounds need to be cleaned up and made more orderly. This is the most fundamental and most far-reaching and the most important improvement which can be suggested in this field. As a rule, school grounds ought to be larger everywhere, and this statement applies most emphatically to country school grounds. It is a matter of sorrow that in the country where land is cheap, school grounds should be pinched in size and the pupils crowded into public streets. Many progressive communities throughout the country have taken steps to correct this evil. Country schools are being provided with commodious grounds. On these grounds are being developed some of the enterprises which should centre around a school. There are school gardens, sometimes fruit trees, sometimes experimental grounds, sometimes adequate playgrounds. Occasionally at such points there are developed rural civic centres. A rural civic centre should include a public meeting hall which may or may not be separate from the school building. It should include a local library. If the community is the fortunate possessor of such an institution, it may very properly include a Grange Hall, and the Royal Church should meet on this ground with the other institutions of the Royal Community. Pictures displayed on the previous page, riverfront improved for public recreation in a German village. In this physical cooperation, they can begin a larger organisation of harmonious association which will help them develop the community as it ought to be developed. Much has been said about the ornamentation of school grounds, about how to lay off walks, where to plant shrubbery, how to grow flower beds and other things of like character. All this is good work and well worth doing, but it will follow as a matter of course when the whole scheme is rightly organised. It represents the detail and not the main principle. As a rule, rural improvement begins at the wrong end when the first undertaking is to plant a flower bed on the school grounds. Cemeteries everywhere are notoriously neglected. This is especially so in rural districts. It is by no means uncommon in older sections of the country to come upon a forgotten cemetery, overgrown with bushes and trees. Even in the new prairie states, there are thousands of cemeteries given up to sunflowers and ragweeds. A progressive and self-respecting community would hardly allow such conditions to exist, and when the local improvement society lays out its program of work, cemetery improvement will be naturally one of the earliest undertakings. The thing to be done is sufficiently plain and simple. The grounds are to be cleaned up and put in good order. Weeds and brush are to be removed, and in their places, grass and trees are to be encouraged. Headstones are to be straightened up, walks to be marked out, and a general condition of order and cleanliness substituted for the present state of disorder and slothiness. In olden times, cemeteries existed as a part of the church grounds, and such an arrangement is still to be found in some places. 
In other places, church grounds exist separately. Plainly, that tract of land belonging to the church should be kept in repair. Two old sayings may be borne in mind. Order is heaven's first law, and cleanliness is next to godliness. Let order and cleanliness prevail, and the church has, in its physical aspect, opened the way to its higher work. The finest feature in many a New England town is the town common. It is strange that so fine an element in town planning should not have been kept up more carefully in the more ambitious, though less attractive towns, founded farther west by the emigrants from New England. Every town which possesses a central common has an asset of priceless value. It is one which should be guarded at every point and at all costs. Nothing should be allowed to encroach upon it under any circumstances. Public-spirited citizens should strenuously resist every effort to place public buildings upon it, and even the habit of placing a memorial monument, bandstands, fountains, and other alleged ornaments on the town common should be strictly discontinued. Such property should be kept strictly open except for its shade trees. Even flower beds are a doubtful improvement in most instances. The towns which do not have central parks or commons should let pass no opportunity for creating them. Sometimes a wise plan, undertaken with sufficient forethought and followed out with sufficient practice, will secure a piece of property which will serve this purpose. A picture is displayed on the page, an old sugar bush admirably suited to be a rural picnic ground. Whether the local community has or is able to secure a central common or not, it will be found good, sound public policy to hold the ownership of the outlying tracks, especially picnic grounds, or pieces of property which the community is likely to need for the common use of its citizens. This is hardly the place to introduce the discussion of public ownership of profit-earning properties, but it may be pointed out that many communities in various parts of the world have had very happy experiences in the ownership and operation of such lands. A considerable number of Swiss and German towns own public forests, and while these add enormously to the beauty and attractiveness of these several localities, they return at the same time substantial revenues. There are a number of towns and cities in Germany and Switzerland where the entire expenses of government are borne by these public forests. Out of the most common deficiencies in the country communities is a lack of playgrounds. There is no place in America where boys do not play ball, and yet there is hardly one town in a thousand where any public provision is made for this and similar games. The consequence is that the boys play in the streets or upon private property. Playing in the streets is dangerous to the players and to the public, and playing upon private property is trespass. Boys who play ball in the street or who trespass upon private property for this purpose have taken the first long step toward robbing the neighbourhood orchards. From robbing orchards, they easily pass to more ambitious depredations and so on to downright felony or plain political graft. There is in fact no reasonable excuse of any sort which can be given by any village or rural community for not owning a public ball ground. Provision should be made for the other sports besides baseball. One reason why country life in the past has been less attractive than city life is just this, that no attention has been paid to such legitimate sports. If some pains could be taken to promote baseball, football, hockey, basketball, and all similar recreations in country neighbourhoods, it would go a long way towards solving more important economic and social problems. The serial situations of men's dwellings are for the most part unavoidable and unremovable. 
for most men cannot appoint forth such a manner of situation for their dwelling as is most fit to avoid all the inconveniences of wind and weather but must be content with such as the place will afford them yet all men do well know that some situations are more excellent than others according therefore to the several situations of men's dwellings so are the situations of their gardens also for the most part and although doers do diversely prefer their own several places which they have chosen or within they dwell as some of those places that are near unto a river or brook to be best for the pleasantness of the water the ease and transportation of themselves their friends and goods and also for the fertility of the soil which is seldom bad near unto a riverside and others extol the side or top of an hill be it small or great for the prospect's sake and again some plain or champaign ground for the even the world thereof every one of which as they have their communities accompanying them so they have also their discommodities belonging unto them according to the latin proverb omnicodunum furt sum incommodum john parkinson paradisi in sol paradisius terrestris old new england villages and small towns and well-kept new england farms have universally a simple and pleasant form of garden called the front yard or front dooryard this front yard was in english fashion derived from the forecourt so strongly advised by gervais markham and found in front of many a yeoman's house the front yard was sacred to the best beloved garden flowers and was preserved by fences from the inroads of cattle mrs ellis morris earl old-time gardens End of section 6of rural improvement by frank a waugh this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings in the public domain for more information for the volunteer please visit librivox.org recorded by leon harvey chapter seven the village home garden the treatment of the home grounds has ever been the most popular problem in american landscape gardening how to lay off the home grounds has been the theme and sometimes the title of a clear majority of all american books on landscape architecture advice is asked more frequently on these matters than on the big problems of city design park administration state reservations and other great works which landscape architects themselves prefer to undertake the importance of these problems of home grounds improvement cannot be overlooked this is one of the largest factors in general civic betterment when the proud citizen is visited by his cousin or his long-lost sister from arkansas or montana his greatest delight is to show off his home town this he does driving up and down the best streets and pointing out the most attractive places there is where colonel jones lives says a proud citizen there is where mr brown a member of the legislature lives there is where mary muggins lives who wrote the famous novel a picture is displayed on the page home and garden from the street an inviting glimpse thus does every citizen praise his own town by pointing out the most attractive homes and thus does every private place become public property we all own an important share in it its good looks are the pride of the town its shabbiness and neglect are a public shame a vigorous campaign should be undertaken to clean and beautify all public grounds for the public benefit the american taste for developing private grounds is unique nowhere else in the world are the same principles followed in the old country the theory is that a man's home grounds are his private possession to be kept as secluded as possible 
In this country, the theory is that every house lot is a public possession, to be shown off to the best advantage. Americans always speak of the development of the front yard, sometimes allowing the backyard to be nothing but a rubbish dump. Doubtless there is some good in both theories. We have already spoken of the public ownership and enjoyment of private grounds, and the wish of every American citizen to make his premises look pleasing from the street is sound and wholesome. At the same time, a man's private garden should be his personal possession to some extent. This sentiment, moreover, is gaining ground in this country. There are more people who want to live out of doors, who want an opportunity to play with their own children, or eat supper with the family in the garden, out of doors and yet with privacy. A picture is displayed on the page, village house and front yard. Now the way in which this division is made largely determines the treatment of the whole garden. The American plan requires the development of a large front yard. The English and German plan requires an enclosed rear yard which is developed to be a real garden. The American plan requires a house set fairly well back from the street. The European plan requires a house set close to the street. On grounds of moderate size or larger, it is possible to accomplish both things. There may be an attractive front yard published to the attention of the world, and then a private garden separated from this by a hedge or screen, forming a sequestered range for the family. Aside from this question of privacy versus publicity, the design of the grounds should be determined first in relation to the main factors. If there is to be a vegetable garden, it should be given its separate and suitable area. If there is to be a dwarf fruit garden, the proper space should be appropriated. If there are to be fruit trees, they should be given room. If there are to be a chicken yard and paddock for the house or garage, the necessary space should be definitely set aside. If members of the family are fond of growing flowers, it would be much better to provide a definite cultivated area for them, presumably at the rear of the grounds, rather than to mix the flower growing experiments with the orchard growing or the front yard. If there are croquet grounds, tennis courts or similar equipment for family recreation, they should be properly located before the remaining details of the design are planned. It is very sad and a very common mistake to leave such questions as these until the grounds have been planted. After everything is done, then someone suddenly brings in the demand for a tennis court which has to be laid off in an unsuitable space, seriously infringing on lawns and flower beds already established. After the main feature of the grounds, like those enumerated, have been definitely settled, the ornamental design proper may be taken up with reasonable hope of a fair issue. This problem, however, is not one of ornamentation. It is instead primarily a question of order versus disorder. The most orderly place is the one that has been designed. This is why the simple and intelligible order of the formal garden is so likely to please. A picture is displayed on the page, masses of lilacs and willows adoring an old house. Now the first principle and the most important one in garden design is simplicity. Simplicity is the queen of garden virtues. The prominence of this virtue is peculiarly visible in dealing with home grounds. Unfortunately, simplicity is one of the rarest accomplishments everywhere, and more rare in gardening than in ordinary life generally. There are a few recurring features in home grounds design which must everywhere be guarded against. The first of these is making collections of plants. All sorts of strange things are bought from the florist, from the tree agent, from the catalogue, and from even the department stores, and are jumbled together all over the front yard. Many of these things are unsuitable to the place. They are usually inharmonious, they disagree with one another and with the house, and the grounds are merely cluttered up with horticultural rubbish. 
The results are exactly the same as occur in house furnishing when the mistress gets the fad for collecting furniture and bric-a-brac. The results are especially bad when the horticultural collector has a taste for freaks. Then he buys camper-down elms, cemetery birches, variegated wagelias, yellow-leaved poplars, red-leaved prunus pisidarii. Crippled and weeping specimens are particularly recurch and particularly vulgar. Along with these horticultural freaks, one commonly finds such curiosities as leaky boats sailing across the lawn, full-freighted with brilliant nasturtiums, disused camp kettles on rustic tripods, and boiling over with red germaniums, leaky boilers elevated on gas pipes, doing service as garden boxes, whitewashed rockeries, and beautiful flower beds engaged with inverted soda pop bottles. A picture is displayed on the page, combination of street planting and home adornment. It ought not to be necessary to condemn such things, but the frequency with which they occur shows that the improvement campaign has something to meet in this respect. A fair question to be raised in garden design for home grounds is whether a formal or a natural style should be preferred. Each style has its devotees and its advantages. It is foolish to condemn either style. As a rule, however, the former style should not be presented in the front yard. It should be used in an enclosed garden which means the private gardens of the rear premises. In small enclosed yards, the formal method of treatment is the easiest and apt to be the most effective from the standpoint of design. When the grounds, or any part of them, are to be developed in the natural style, the main requirement is to have plain and open lawn. Special efforts should be made to secure spacious areas of good grass growing on nicely graded land. The land should either be practically level or should show the most pleasing curves possible. Very few people appreciate how much beauty can be secured in the contours of the land itself. In order to secure such spacious and open lawns, the planting should be pushed back to the margins. It is an almost fixed rule that planting in the natural style, the trees, shrubs and flowers should be placed in masses along the outer margins. These margins should be irregular, retreating here and advancing there, giving heavy masses alternating with light feathery screens letting in the sunlight in one part, throwing heavy shadows in another. Great skill can be used in developing such setting to the very highest effectiveness. Is an amateur will hardly make serious mistakes if some thought and patience are given to the work. Having disposed of the general design, we may now consider the planting. The first caution is not to overplant. Still, many persons make the mistake of planting too meagerly. The rule of professional landscape gardeners is a good one. It is plant thick, thin quick. This is poor grammar, but good horticulture. If the young shrubs and trees are set close together, they help one another. The moment they begin to grow, however, the poorest ones must be thinned out to make room for those which are to remain permanently. This method of developing grounds has an additional advantage in that it gives complete effects from the first year of planting. A picture is displayed on the previous page, springtime in the privacy of the home garden. The next point to be observed is to use hardy stuff. Plants which will not withstand the climate in which they are placed may be very rare and curious, but it is bad policy to use them. The superior value of thoroughly hardy plants is fully recognised in America at the present time. This desire for hardy materials has led to the addition of another rule, namely that we should always use native stuff. Where specifically naturalistic effects are aimed at, especially where the backgrounds of landscape are broadened to design, 
the use of strictly natural stuff is wholly to be justified. On the other hand, in small home gardens, there is seldom reason in employing such an arbitrary rule. There are many splendid plants from Europe and Asia which are hardy and should be freely used. What could we do, for instance, without Japanese barberries and European lilacs? When thoroughly hardy plants are chosen for a garden, we have to give a prepondering allowance of shrubs and perennial herbs. Now, hardy shrubs and perennials are desirable for still other reasons, and so we have developed a sort of general preference for this class of materials. They should usually be the principal reliance in garden making. A person who makes a garden should expect to plant something every year. The idea of making a garden now and keeping it without alteration forever is founding on a series of misapprehensions. The planting of new things every spring is a large part of the enjoyment of a garden. Furthermore, there are improvements to be made even in the best planted gardens. Every garden needs care. No matter how perfectly it is made, it needs constant looking after. Weeds have to be kept out, trees and shrubs pruned and lawns mowed. A great part of the attractiveness of every garden is secured at this very point. A well-kept garden is a good one, even if the design be poor. A neglected garden is a bad one, no matter if it were laid off by the best landscape architect living. A large part of the garden work is merely maintenance. A picture is displayed on the previous page. The apple tree is unsurpassed for ornamental planting. How are these things to be promoted in a civic betterment campaign? Perhaps the simplest and best method is to arouse enthusiasm and distribute knowledge through the schools. If school teachers are proficient in these lines, if they develop school gardens, if they do still better by developing home garden movements, then a community is in the possession of a working force capable of great good. Wherever an active village improvement society exists, such a society ought to undertake, as a part of its work, to promote good taste and enthusiasm in the development of home grounds. This can be done by bringing into the community good lecturers on such subjects and by placing in the local library suitable books. A village improvement society can also take up any of the work of the regular horticultural society like that mentioned below. Where a woman's club acts as the agent of the community betterment, it can do the same work. In some parts of the country, notably in the province of Ontario, Canada, there are many local horticultural societies. These societies hold stated and special meetings at which all questions of gardening, tree planting, flower growing, and such improvements are discussed. Such societies also hold flower shows, fruit shows, and special fairs. They also organize gardening contests which are particularly helpful in promoting village improvement along these lines. In such garden contests, the various home grounds are visited by communities of experts who make suggestions give instructions, and point out the best results. As a matter of fact, all these methods of arousing enthusiasm and organising and attracting interest in the home grounds are capable of easy application, and the results are likely to be altogether good. The only absolutely essential thing is the leadership of a few sensible men or women. It is conditions d'un order plus specialment material qui devent entre considérés dans les choix d'un résidence rurale. Soitans son ensemble, cest à dire avec une exploitation agricole ou forestrie, suit au point du vous plus restreint du parc ou du jardin, sont principalement les suivants. 1. Le paysage environment. 2. L'altitude et le facilité d'accès. 3. Le climate et l'orientation. 4. 
Le Forme et la nature du sol. 5. Les arbres, les arbres, et les vues. 6. Les silks. 7. Les constructions. 8. Les ornaments pittoresques. 9. Les resources financières. Et André. L'art des jardins. Men do usually covert great qualities of land, yet cannot manage a little well. There were amongst the ancient Romans some appointed to see that men did till their lands as they should do, and if they did not, to punish them as enemies of the public. Perhaps such a law might not be amiss with us, for without question the public suffereth much by private men's negligence. I therefore wish men to take Cromwell's counsel, which is laudato ingenta rura, exiguum colito, familior est culta exquitus, etc. As another saith, or as we say in English, a little farm well tilled is to be preferred. Samuel Hartlib's Legacy End of section 7section eight of rural improvement by frank a war this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recorded by leon harvey chapter eight farm planning in any scheme of rural improvement great emphasis must be placed on the development of individual farms if each farm is clean tidy well kept with a thrifty and home-like air and the whole neighbourhood will be attractive to visitors and satisfying to residents. To say of any valley that it is a district of fertile and well-kept farms is to picture it before the human imagination in the most engaging language possible. Those railway companies and state boards of agriculture which have given prizes for the best-kept farms in certain districts have been promoting a very practical form of rural progress. Let us consider the farm, therefore, as a unit to see what can be done for its better organisation convenient administration and for the atmosphere of beauty and comfort which ought to characterize it a plan of a roman farm layout taken from wet days at edgewood all this is displayed on the page a the farmhouse and b farm buildings and connections a picture is displayed on the following page roman farm layout we find that some farms are disadvantageously planned at the outset in the old french districts of canada for example the original farms were measured out in arpents along one central road, from which they ran back at right angles in long narrow strips. Subdivision of these lands has always run lengthwise, the strips growing narrower at each generation divided its patrimony. I have myself seen farms on the Red River in Manitoba, two miles long and sixty-six feet wide, and I have been told of others the same width and four miles long. In New England and the eastern states generally, farms are often very irregular and composed of scattered, more or less isolated tracts. There will be a pasture field of 20 acres, one half mile distant from the home, a good farm lot detached by a mile, and perhaps a 10-acre wood lot two miles away. The care of such a farm is obviously much more expensive than for the same area compactly located. In many cases, it would be good business to sell outlying holdings and buy other land adjoining the farm, headquarters, even at a considerable capital outlay. In this connection, we may remember that the deeds and surveys of farmlands are not always satisfactory, and this criticism applies especially to the farmlands of New England. 
a new system of land transfer such as the torrent system slowly coming into use in parts of new york state would be an advantage to all landholders whatever the system the farmer ought to be sure that his titles are clear and altogether sound the method of drawing deeds in use in the eastern states is very faulty the bulk of the land has never been surveyed no lines are definitely established brown's deed reads that his farm is bounded on the west by black's land and black's deed shows that his land is bounded on the east by brown's farm on the only important question of where brown's land divides from black's the records are absolutely non-committal it would be a very important and substantial public improvement and in most neighbourhoods worth many times the cost if the entire district could be officially surveyed and placed on permanent record so that a man in case of an emergency could go out and find his own farm now when a man has found his farm and has got possession of a suitable tract conveniently and compactly located his next problem is to plan that whole area so that it may be effectively and economically administered the first thing to be done is to fix an administrative centre in plain english this usually means the location of the farmhouse and farm buildings there are a good many farms now and ought to be more in the future which the business will be conducted from a central office leaving the dwelling house to seek a detached location it is plain that the administrative centre of the farm should be placed as nearly as possible at the geographical centre the location of buildings at one side or extreme corner of the farm is a very common and expensive fault it is important of course that the buildings be located conveniently to the public road and in case a public road touches only one side of the farm this may justify an eccentric location the practical question is whether there will be more coming and going between the buildings and the various parts of the farm or between the buildings and the village corners and the railroad station other considerations which should influence the location of the farm buildings are one water supply two drainage three aspect and protection four outlook to the sun the sky and the landscape in coming to decision one site will often have to be considered against another the claims governing sites can then be balanced best by means of a sort of scorecard which might take the following form a scorecard site for farm buildings is displayed on the page of course every man or woman would have to make up such a scorecard for himself for to some the outlook would seem as important as the ministry of convenience or water supply as important as either a picture is displayed on the page hit or mislocation an actual example with the building centrally located the next step will be the convenient subdivision of the farmland so as to make all parts readily accessible practical roads and lanes should be located where needed culverts put in where necessary manageable farm gates installed where they cannot be omitted stiles provided in certain places and a systematic orderly movement of the farm traffic substituted for the usual haphazard style there are thousands of orchards which cannot be reached with a loaded spray pump and thousands of fields for which a load of hay cannot be drawn without a large chance of upsetting much of this is founded to be sure more upon the principles of farm management than upon the principles of landscape architecture but as a fact which ought to be universally acknowledged that rural improvement cannot travel far unless good farm management and taste pull together the farm buildings being located their grouping with reference to one another interests us in turn in actual practice we can seldom find a farm where this problem has been seriously considered such arrangement as we find in certain parts of the country is obviously the result of tradition rather than of intelligent study of the matter in most parts of america farm buildings are merely scattered about hit or miss without much relation to one another 
The house is commonly placed next to the road, the barn 100 feet away from it in almost any direction, and the other buildings fall into any space which happens to be open at the time of their making. This system, or lack of system, reaches its worst when the buildings are scattered all over a 40-acre lot, so that the farmer must walk 20 miles to do a day's chores. A picture is displayed on the page, the connected series, Fernwood Example. Conditions of life and climate in New England serve to develop a type of arrangement compact and in many ways useful. The house was placed next to the street, typically end to the street. Back of it and joined to it came the woodshed, next the granary or toolhouse, and lastly the barn. The whole forming a connected linear series. The only serious objection to this arrangement is the fire risk. If one building catches fire, the whole layout is pretty sure to burn. Another and inferior style of arrangement occasionally found in the eastern states places the house on one side of the public road, with the barn and dependent buildings directly opposite and facing the house. This arrangement is fairly convenient and reduces the fire risk somewhat, but it exhibits the premises in bad order to the public, and no one can hope to find the best type of human culture developed in that family, which from year's end to year's end grazes wistfully into the cattle yards and the manure spreader. From a purely scientific point of view, the best arrangement of farm buildings is probably the quadrangular, as shown in the accompanying diagrams. A picture is displayed on the previous page, farm buildings arranged around a quadrangle. The several unit buildings may be placed against one another, or may be somewhat detached, as circumstances may dictate. This grouping supplies a basis for the most economical management of farm buildings. The fire risk should be reduced by fireproof or slow-burning construction, a type of building properly within the means of modern and prosperous agriculture. There is one drawback to the quadrilateral scheme of arrangement, namely that a closed square offers great difficulties in the addition of new buildings or the extension of old ones. Foresight will deprive this objection of some of its force, the preventive measures being to plan the extensions with the original layout, or to leave an open axis along which the building scheme may be extended. The artistic and purely ornamental treatment of the farm grounds is a matter which has often been discussed. It is indeed about the only phase of the subject which receives popular attention, although it is the last one which can be taken up in actual practice. It is difficult within reasonably brief compass to give any really constructive advice in this matter, but a few suggestions must be offered nevertheless. A picture is displayed on the page, another quadrangular arrangement. The ornamental treatment of farms may follow an almost infinite variety of methods. But in order to simplify our discussion of the subject, we will rather arbitrarily reduce these to three types, which we will call respectively the park treatment, the garden treatment, and the plan treatment. The park treatment is applicable to relatively large and prosperous farms, or to those which are the country homes of city people, rather than the business farms of actual farmers. On such places there must be considerable areas, perhaps four or five acres, perhaps 400 or 500 acres, which can be given up to ornamental treatment. These areas are then developed as a private pleasure park, emphasising all natural features of beauty, such as meadows, streams or woodland, or even creating these where conditions are favourable. Such country seats or farm parks are characteristic of rural England, and the artistic style to be employed in their development is inevitably English. It is a natural style of landscape gardening in its pristine and bucolic simplicity. There are a few good examples of it in America, but there ought to be thousands more. 
There are today many thousands of American farmers, omitting for the present the city farmers, who can well afford to appropriate 110 acres or 20 acres apiece from their farms to be made into parks and pleasure grounds. In many instances, such a move would pay its way as a real estate investment. The garden treatment ought to be the most common one, especially for bona fide farms. This scheme is based upon the principle that every farm residence should have a small bit of lawn, a flower garden and a vegetable garden, and that all these ought to be artistically brought together as one organic unit, focusing upon the farmhouse at the centre. These ornamental grounds ought to be small, otherwise they cannot be maintained in presentable order. Perhaps the ideal type will be somewhat like that shown on page 155. A small lawn in front of the house, a vegetable garden on the kitchen side, and a flower garden on the living side of the house. The outline sketch here given is not meant necessarily to suggest a formal garden. For, though the restricted grounds will naturally lead to a more or less formal treatment, still, the taste of many farm families will develop a more free and easy arrangement. A picture is displayed on the previous page, park-like treatment of farm grounds. It should be particularly noticed that the scheme here offered shows the lawn in front of the house bare of all flower beds, fountains, statuettes, and furniture of every description. All these things belong in the flower garden and never on the lawn, and it is the commonest mistake of farming and gardening to put them directly in front of the house. Keep the front lawn clear and open to the last degree. Plant flowers and shrubs in the garden where they can be successfully cultivated. Put the cast iron deer and the camp kettle flower pot in the junk heap. The plain treatment, as we have called it, is a rough caption under which to describe the large number of farms whereon still simpler schemes of ornamentation must be adopted. There will still be thousands of farms where flower gardens will not be prized, and when a semi-ornamental treatment of the vegetable garden will seem unnecessary. The pictures are displayed on the page, simple treatment of farmhouse front yard. But even the poorest and meanest farmyard should not be without its touch of beauty, order and dignity. There will be some front yard at least, and this will be kept clean and tidy. There will be clumps of lilacs at the front door, or a trumpet vine climbing on the piazza. And best of all, there will be a few big trees, elms, maples or tulip, between the house and the streets. The trees are almost indispensable, but given a few really good trees, the whole scheme is safe. In case a farmhouse can sit back 100-500 feet from the public road, with nearly level land intervening, a straight avenue of trees leading direct to the front door is always dignified and in good taste. This arrangement is seen rather frequently before in the fine old plantation houses of Virginia and the southern states, and is usually in the highest degree pleasing and satisfactory. Finally, in dealing with the improvement of farms and farmyards, we come to a matter of the utmost consequence, viz. the constant care of the premises. Many farms look all run down, the buildings needing paint, the fences sagging, the windmill minus the wing, ploughs, wagons and self-binders out to the weather and standing in helpless disorder all over the front yard. Even when it does not reach its worst, this disease is fatal to any real beauty in the farm life. Disorder of every sort must be absolutely banished. The place must be kept clean and tidy, and constantly put to rights. This is a thousand times more important than the making of a flower garden, or the planning of a pergola, or a corporate court. 
such improvements of farms farmyards and farm neighbourhoods as are here urged can be promoted in various ways prizes can be offered by boards of agriculture or by local fair associations it would be just as legitimate to give a liberal prize for the best planned and best kept farm in a county as to the biggest pumpkin or the gaudiest bit quilt farm improvement can be talked up in farmers clubs and especially in granges there are hundreds of subordinate and pomona granges where a vigorous propaganda of this sort would be the most helpful work undertaken in a decade this business has so much good in it that even the churches might take it up and an occasional sermon from the pulpit on these lines would be a welcome relief from the curse of riches and the general bow-wows indeed there is not a club lodge or organization of any sort in business for the good of the community which cannot wisely assist in such a campaign there are many misconceptions current about town and city planning but none is farther from the fact than the notion that comprehensive plans are only for large cities the reverse is nearer the truth john nolan replanning small cities end of section eight section nine of rural improvement by frank a war this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings for the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recorded by leon harvey chapter nine community planning that branch of civic art in which the most active work is now being done is usually called city planning on every hand new cities and city additions are being planned by experts following modern ideas and introducing many features of marked improvement over old styles. Similar same scientific and artistic ideals ought to be applied to the planning of the rural districts as natural rural centres and country villages. As it relates to the planning of country roads, something has already been said in the chapter on roads and streets. The general principles of community design may now be considered in more detail and with more special reference to the villages. We meet one serious obstacle at once in the fact that many small country villages are trying to be big cities. A picture is displayed on the previous page, Hanover N.H. Common and Church, Springfield VT Village Centre. Even when they have actually given up all hope of metropolitan growth, they still persistently, though half unconsciously, ape metropolitan behaviour. They are like older maids forsaken by opportunity, but still simpering and smiling and so commanding a fecund future. The western states are especially burdened with such stillborn metropoli. Every crossroads is going to be a county seat, and every county seat aspires to be the state capital. Meanwhile, no town has inspiration and ignity to be itself. The condition of those unhappy towns which cannot be even county seats is especially pitiable. They stand about the prairies, forlorn and wretched in the extreme. The New England village is a much better community in every respect, chiefly because it is satisfied and even proud to be a village, and being proud of its place in the world, it undertakes earnestly to make the best of it. In 99 villages and towns out of every 100 throughout the United States, more especially in the South and West, the first work of community improvement lies in killing the poison of false ambition and establishing a patriotic self-respect. From our present point of view, the great damage that results from this foolish ambition is that the town is wrongly planned. It is laid out on the expectation that it will one day be a Chicago, a Winnipeg, or a Seattle. 
If it were definitely designed from the first to take care of a population of 250 or 600, as a reasonable expectation might be, it would be a great deal better. That is, it would if intelligently planned. It is wonderful, however, how little intelligence is commonly used in city planning, and especially in those places where the projectors are free to make a plan. Out on the plains, railroads are still being built in some hundreds of towns, including some county seats, are being laid out on clean land every year. Surely here is the greatest opportunity in the world to put to use the best new knowledge of community planning. As most of these new towns are born with a railroad company for one parent, one would expect the companies to introduce some technical experience into the youngster's education. But they do not. As each new town is projected by its heedless sponsors, the land boomers and the railroad promoters, it merely follows the old, trite, childish checkerboard pattern, now known to be the worst ever devised for village, town or city. Other expensive and excusable mistakes accompany this gridiron plan. Besides having spent all my boyhood in the country where this happens, I have recently visited and studied several of these new and ambitious towns and have vividly renewed my knowledge of their defects. The worst of these defects are as follows. 1. The streets are made all the same width. Here one finds the streets serving a population of 500 souls, but the street is 80 feet wide and 60 feet of that is asphalt. The street really has no need for asphalt, but there must be so many miles of asphalt street to beat the rival town 20 miles away. Even so, 16 feet wide would have been quite asphalt enough and much cheaper, and the abutting property owners would have had cool grass in front of their houses in place of black asphalt, which absorbs the heat all day and gives it up all night, especially in July and August. Pictures displayed on the previous page, German village plan, a distinctive type of informal design. 2. Streets are generally too wide. In thousands of prairie towns, every street is wider than the Strand in London, Friedrichstrasse in Berlin or Broadway, New York. Such streets are by no means needed for traffic and are a needless expense. 3. Streets do not follow the contours of the land. This is the fault primarily of the rigid checkerboard system, the results of which are doubly deplorable when the straight streets runs up steep hills or across narrow gullies, involving interminable expense in street making and endless damage to adjoining real estate. This is one of the most ridiculous and fortunately one of the most widely recognized mistakes in community planning. 4. There is lamentable failure to reserve public grounds. Every old world village has its open marketplace, and the New England town has its common. These public forums have been of inestimable value in the civic life of those communities, and it's beyond explanation that the intelligent and ambitious people who have made and are making the new towns should neglect a matter of such consequence. 5. There is a similar failure to reserve sites for public buildings. At the very outset, the town expects to have schoolhouses, churches, a library, and possibly other public buildings. Why provision is not made for these in the original plan passes all understanding. The best results in the way of small villages have been secured through natural growth, rather than through premeditated planning. That is, a slower natural development in response to actual needs and guided by natural conditions and topography will more fully satisfy all utilities than any theoretical plan evolved on paper. And the utilities thus fully satisfied, legitimate needs frankly met, there has been achieved one of the prime elements of beauty, 
In the mushroom towns of the central and western states, however, the growth method cannot be so confidently relied upon. There must be some sort of plan at the start. Having rejected the checkerboard layout, we are in duty bound to say what should take its place. Now it must be admitted that in the flat prairie regions the checkerboard design is less disastrous than the rolling or hilly country, though it is certainly not the best style of town making. The designer hesitates to manufacture regularities of street plan for a perfectly level site. On hills or mountainsides he can follow the contours and thus achieve picturesqueness of aspect combined with variety of prospect and convenience of life. On flat land, what shall be the designer's motive? Evidently, it must be the long level horizon line, the straight line. Winding, circuitous streets will be out of the question. Now these straight street lines can be combined in an infinite variety of ways besides that of the gridiron. First of all, they should be broken into short sections. The long, undetermined street on flat land being especially monotonous, it has a peculiarly futile effect. It seems to arrive nowhere. These straight streets, broken up in short sections, should be arranged so as to avoid, on the one hand, the monotonous parallelism of the checkerboard system, and on the other, the helter-skelter effect of no system at all. The divergencies from the four points of the compass should be reasonable and moderate. The next point in such a plan is to secure a variety of street intersections. This highly important matter has been worked out only by the modern German planners and by the architects of the Renaissance in northern Italy. It may be applied, however, directly to the design of streets for modern American villages. Now, when two streets cross in this country, it is usually through obligatory that they should make a clean intersection, as at A. The fact is that a broken intersection, as that shown in B, has many sound advantages which make it best under certain circumstances. It gives commanding locations, at the end of street vistas, to four buildings. Such locations are desirable either for public buildings, business blocks, or residences. Traffic is not obstructed. Picture is displayed on the page. Street intersections. But even this arrangement, though decidedly superior to the usual featureless intersection, is more stiff and formal than necessary. Moreover, it cannot be frequently repeated, or it becomes more monotonous and tedious than a less pretentious unit. Since the streets in an ideal plan are not to be parallel, they need not meet at right angles, and a great diversity of informality in the intersections may be secured as suggested at C, D, and E. A picture is displayed on the page, more street intersections. Now, in the intersections at B and E, respectively, there appears to be a little dot of unusual room. In this spot a fine tree may be very effectively placed, or such points become the very best of sites for fountains, statues, or other memorials when required. A picture is displayed on the page, small open square, Georgetown, Massachusetts. If this system of planning is carried to its proper conclusion, however, there will be considerable larger open spaces left at many points, especially though not always at street junctions. A picture is displayed on the page, recessed group of residences. Such varied and irregular open spots are shown in the modern German plans, and in practice they give the most interesting and delightful results. The sketch plan at F shows a more attractive little open spot of this kind, something less than 100 feet square, occurring accidentally in an old New England village. In the garden suburbs of England, especially in those designed by Mr. Raymond Unwin, rather frequent use is made of small public or semi-public greens recessed from the street, as shown in Plan G. This little space is used for a green or park, or for a children's playground, or for a tennis court, 
or for a common flower garden. In any case, it provides a very delightful frontage for eight or a dozen dwellings. These houses, though still within immediate reach of the street, are away from the dust and gasoline and enjoy a much pleasanter outlook than can ever be arranged from twelve houses standing in a straight line along a straight street. The inlook is also to be considered, and certainly the view given to the passer-by glimpsing across this little green is novel, varied, and altogether charming. A picture displayed on the previous page, more elaborate recessed group after Raymond Unwin. In village planning, also, there ought to be more frequent short streets or places with dead ends, accommodated six to a dozen residences. Such streets are necessarily quiet and clean, being free from every possibility of through travel. The cost of street making and maintenance is reduced to the minimum. Such suggestions as these can be put into effect freely only in towns in the nascent state. Towns just been planned or new additions up to existing towns. It is greatly to be hoped that future community planning, whether in cities, suburbs, or country villages, will show more variety, more art, and more intelligent attention to utilitarian needs than the American plans of the last 200 years. A pertinent question is, what can be done for the improvement of towns already monotonously built on the checkerboard plan? Careful intelligent study of any particular case will reveal a good deal that can be done. Here and there are corners that can be knocked off, and which, when planted with trees or grass, become practicable commons, breaking up the dull irregularity of the scheme, and introducing a sense of cosy homeliness. A picture is displayed on the previous page, actual street intersections showing existing irregularities. Here and there are entire blocks, sometimes two blocks in a place, which can be condemned for playgrounds or other public uses. The width of the streets, or at least the paved portions, can be varied in proportion to the traffic. On the surplus width, varying schemes of tree planting and parking can be carried out. In a few cases, street junctions may be broken up to secure diversity, and occasionally neighbouring houses can be grouped so as to secure some mass effect of architecture. In this last particular, truly wonderful results are secured in the garden suburbs of England and Germany, results which we cannot approach under most American conditions. The principles of community planning are here discussed with special reference to the conditions in country towns and villages, but the same considerations apply to some extent to community planning in the open country. For the open country ought to be planned as carefully as a town or city. The subject in its rural applications, however, is dealt with more fully in the lecture on roads. A picture displayed on the previous page, important central street corners from actual survey. Den die Kraft, die Gen Welt der Ruhr, des Riefen Kunstlerischen Beherrigens Geschaffen Reiben, sind noch immer lebendig, nur die Achtung und die Kenntnis sind vermindert. Haben wir dies eskatten lassen, den Worten auch die Kraft wirksam und damit in Eklang mit den Bedürfnissen des modern Lebens wieder extet wurden. Dies Kraft sind der Hauptstadt der geographischen Verhausnis der Endorperflasch, die mit ihren Land Wasser und Vegetationen, Lebensqualität und Lebensmöglichkeit bestimmen. Ergänzt werden sie durch der Verkehr mit seinen wirtschaftlichen Einflüssen, die die Längdebit einander nahen bringen die Länderhütten in Füllheiten offen 
und am Gecker weiter ein heibiges Schaffen. Dies Graf hatten Bischer die Formen der Seidelunge in Uttermen sin octaier epochverstasht. Bestimmt sie hatten künstlerisch und wittschlaflich verwenderanken außerordentlich Bassflusses. Robert Milk, Das Dorf End of section 9